Oh, hey, I'm Julia Hole. I've never caught a fish in my life, nor have I ever tried. I'm a PhD candidate studying biology and ecology. Welcome to the special episode of WTF Biology. Lots of people will be celebrating Easter soon, so I'm doing a special episode on resurrection. Not about Jesus, though. About something way more interesting. Resurrection moss. These little bastards are some of the coolest things I've ever seen. And my guest today is one of the top ecologists in the world, and one of the best teachers I have ever had. But before we get into that, let's hurry and get the housekeeping out of the way. Thank you to all of you who are spreading the word about the show. So far, we've been heard in 34 countries, which is just fucking wacky. And a big thanks to the New Zealanders who are spreading this show like us Americans spread COVID. Please check out Patreon at patreon.com slash WTFbiology. For a buck a month, you'll get access to a bunch of bonus content. For every full episode, I tell a secret about that episode. And these secrets come fully equipped with a behind-the-scenes look and a moral to the story. And if you support WTF Biology on Patreon at the $5 a month level, you'll get access to cool-ass nature shit videos where I walk around my the forest by my house or wherever I happen to be and point out nature shit that I think is cool. I was recently in Grand Canyon, so you'll at least want to check out the WTF Biology YouTube channel for some really cool Grand Canyon stuff. I'll just warn you that I had oral surgery two days before I recorded this interview, so if I sound like a second grader who's missing a front tooth, well, you can go to patreon.com slash WTF Biology and listen to The Secret for episode one to learn why. My guest today is a professor in the School of Forestry at Northern Arizona University and was recently ranked one of the top ecologists by PLOS Biology. Even though this dude might deserve to have a giant ego, he's just a really cool down-to-earth guy. He studies resurrection moss and biological soil crusts, both of which are just like fucking awesome. So please join me in welcoming Dr. Matt Bowker. My name is Matthew Bowker. I usually go by Matt, and I work as an associate professor in the School of Forestry at Northern Arizona University. Perfect. So how did you become interested in science, and then specifically, why mosses? With science, I think maybe I was kind of always interested and didn't know. Like, if I think back on, like, books I would read as a kid, I was, you know, I was interested in books about bugs and dinosaurs and stuff like that, and I would actually read the science section of the newspaper. Um, but I didn't really think of myself as a scientist until my undergraduate studies in in, uh, in university. I guess just because my classes didn't really grab me. Right. Yeah. I I think that's a common for a lot of people is that they, you know, when you're a kid, you like to play outside and look at stuff and learn about science. But, uh, you know, and then when you become a stupid teenager and then you forget that you like cool stuff. Yes, exactly. And um, <laughs> I just I had to be I had to be shown that again. And um, right. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I found I found biology in in college and uh, the mosses. Part, that was real serendipity. Um, it just happened that uh, a faculty advisor that I approached about doing an undergraduate thesis project, he had a project idea uh, with mosses, and that's really what kind of took me down that path. Nice. Um, so, you know, moss is a large group of these kind of ancient plants. Um, mm-hmm. Like, when did we start seeing uh, mosses evolve and, like, in the fossil record and stuff like that? Yeah, so mosses go back to um, the Ordovician, and that would put them somewhere between uh, 450 and 500 million years. So they're pretty old, uh, one of the earlier groups of land plants. Just for reference, that'd be, like, 300 million years before there were any flowering plants and maybe a hundred-ish million years before there were any ferns. So they're pretty old. Yeah, they were like one of the first groups of plants that stopped being algae and started being terrestrial plants. That's right. Yeah, so there's a there's a group of early plants called bryophytes, and that includes mosses, liverworts, and hornworts. And I don't 
I don't believe it's totally clear like which one of those is the very earliest, but they are descendants of of green algae, and that's how land plants kind of came about. That was the pathway. Green algae became terrestrial and started becoming more uh, a little bit more complicated and uh, forming some of these early plants, early bryophytes. Right. Yeah, so moths have maintained some of those early characteristics. Like, for example, um, moths don't have vascular tissues like some of the quote-unquote higher plants have. Like trees and tulips and ferns and stuff don't or have these um, pipes that, where they send water and nutrients throughout their bodies. So what are some of the ancient characteristics that mosses uh, maintain still? Okay. Um, it's maybe easier to kind of flip that around and talk about some of the things that, that mosses don't have that trees and tulips and ferns might have. So one of those things is that they don't make any seeds. And so all this, all the stuff involved with making seeds, like flowers, fruit, or cones, they don't have that. In place of that, they reproduce through spores. And those come out of a, a special thing called a sporophyte. And it's basically like a capsule full of spores on a stick. So that's, that's a pretty um, ancient anatom- anatomical characteristic that they have. Another one would be because they don't have those uh, that internal pipe structure, they can't transport water really, really high off the ground. So for that reason, they're mostly pretty small plants. They're usually millimeters, centimeters tall. Yeah, they can't get water up to really high tissues. Um, that's kind of a constraint on how big they can be. Yeah, they have to uh, allow for passive diffusion of water throughout their tissues. Yes. Yeah, that's exactly right. Um, and also, yeah, they uh, they actually move water on the exterior of their tissues, which is really, really cool, too. Hmm. Um, another thing that they lack is roots. So they have something that kind of is kind of root-shaped. They're called rhizoids. But they don't really function like roots. They don't really grab water and they don't grab nutrients. They just kind of hold the mosses down. And another thing that that they don't have that trees, tulips, and ferns would have are stomates. They don't have them for most of their life cycle, I should say. These are little pores that let CO2, carbon dioxide, into the plant. And, um, you know, they build their, they build their bodies with that, with that CO2. Um, but also uh, water can escape through those through those pores, but they don't have them. <laughs> right. Again, passive diffusion, the CO2 molecules entering the leaf so they can do photosynthesis. Yeah, passing through the passing through the membranes. Let's talk about sex, moss sex. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so all plants have this alteration of generations in in our in our trees and for well not necessarily ferns but in trees and tulips. Um, what we see with our naked eye is, is the sporophyte that you talked about. Is this, um, so let's talk about the alteration of generations and, and how moths do it different from our, uh, quote unquote higher plants. Okay. Sure. Um, so the first thing that we need to know is these words haploid and diploid. Haploid means one copy of each chromosome, and diploid means means two. Okay, and this is this is a plant and animal thing. There's, um, you know, haploid parts of the life cycle and diploid parts of the life cycle. Normally, we think right. of haploid cells as as part of the sexual reproduction process. So, uh, haploids come from different parents come together. In humans, for example, our, our gametes are part of, are the haploid part of our life cycle, sperm and eggs. And it's kind of like that in uh, plants as well. There's pollen, which are uh, kind of like sperm vessels, and there's egg cells in plants. And when these two haploid components come together, then you've got a, a diploid, okay? And eventually that's going to form a... Mm-hmm 
di- diploid plant seed that has DNA from uh, at least two parents, and that diploid seed is going to grow into a diploid, diploid plant. So the normal right. way, or at least what we think is the normal way, is that the haploid phase is just a, a little part of the life cycle. It's kind of like just there for a, a fleeting moment. And the plant that you normally see is at least diploid. But with, when, when we're talking about mosses, it's, it's totally flipped. It's the opposite. When you see fuzzy green covering on rock that you recognize as moss, that's actually the haploid phase. And that's that, that green plant, that's called a, the gametophyte. So it's like gamete plant. Right. Yeah. Um, I always told my um, intro biology students when we would talk about alteration of generations and they'd be like sitting there with their jaws open going, what the hell is going on? I would always say that gametophytes make gametes and spore-ophytes make spores. And then they go, oh, okay, there now you I go. understand. <laughs> yes, that helps a lot. <laughs> um. <laughs> The cool thing with the mosses is the gametophyte is long-lived. It's not just like a, a temporary thing. They're male, they're female, or in some some species, they're both at the same time. They do produce gametes. They produce swimming sperm cells, the male ones do, and they uh, produce mm-hmm. egg cells, the female ones do. And then if a lucky sperm is able to swim to an egg cell, then... The fertilization happens, and then the female gametophyte grows the diploid sporophyte, which has DNA from both the male parent and the female parent. And that's the spore capsule on a stick, and it's full of haploid spores, which then grow into haploid gametophytes, little green plants. So it's all backwards. The spore, the sporophyte is kind of the temporary leading part of the life cycle, and most of what you see 90-plus percent of the time is the haploid gametophyte phase. Yeah, I think that maybe trees and tulips and stuff are doing it backward. <laughs> maybe. Moss invented maybe. this shit. <laughs> yes. Yeah, mosses, mosses had their own way, and then along came tulips and screwed it all up. <laughs> okay, so um, moss... Uh, male gametes have to swim around, um, which means that they have to have water in order to swim um, to find the female uh, gametophyte. And so they're dependent on water for the sexual reproduction. And that's typically why we find them in cool, moist places, except for there's this huge group of desert moss where it's really dry. Um, and mm-hmm. so these plants um, have evolved to live in these dry places. And you're studying a certain genus of moss that lives in deserts all over the world. And so tell me what that um, what that genus of moss is and kind of a little bit about it. Sure. Um, well, first, yes, uh, it's shocking to some people, but deserts do have mosses. And um, that genus that you're talking about is called Centrichia. And it's not, the genus isn't exclusively found in deserts, but a couple of the really common species, um, they're found in, in dry places throughout the northern hemisphere. So deserts and steppes and um, semi-arid woodlands and places like that. Um, and, yeah, that's the moss I've been studying since I was an undergraduate. And um, so it's very much a, it's an old friend. <laughs> Um, and so how did this, you know, this plant that we typically associate with these wet, moist places, or wet, moist, lady, redundant woman, these cool, moist places live, um, what are the adaptations to live in hot, dry places? Okay, so they just take a totally different approach to water than um, vascular plants. I'm going to say vascular plants instead of higher plants. So we don't imply that vascularity is superior. So 
instead of um, doing like vascular plants and mining water out of the soil with their roots and then regulating its loss, the moss strategy, or I'm sorry, the, um, the vascular plant strategy is mostly never dry out, right? They're constantly trying to get more water into them and actively searching for it with the roots and then slowing down the rate that it leaves. The mosses are, are um, more or less just going the direction that the environment takes them. And one of the most important traits of mosses in general uh, is something called poikilohydry. And I know that's a horrible, horrible term. Um, but <laughs> what, uh, what it means is just the amount of water inside the moss, it's not regulated by the moss it will equilibrate with time with the amount of water outside of the moss. So the moss kind of ebbs and flows with the water content depending on how much water is available, okay? So kind of the downside to that is that when it, when it gets really dry, you know, let's say it rains and then a few days later it's dry again, that moss is going to lose its body water. And um, these mosses that live in the desert they're able to tolerate that that drying out. We call it desiccation tolerance, uh, basically without harm. So they're losing the vast majority of their body water and being completely unharmed by it. So Interesting. That's super cool. It is super cool. It's a neat trick. So the moss tissue dries out. Like you would pick it up and say, yep, that's pretty dry. You know, it would be just like, some dry old leaves or something. Um, but unlike the tomato plant or the corn plant that you forgot to water, it's not dead. It's just shut down in the dry state, and it can wait for water. And then uh, when it does rain again or if it does get wet again, it'll rehydrate and resurrect, so to speak, and turn back on when there's moisture again. Yeah, so how dry like how long of a period can these moss withstand being like bone dry yeah so i'm not i'm not sure we know that for sure but um i do know that a colleague of mine was able to take a um, sample of centrichia out of an herbarium where it had been dry for 20 years and then hydrated and um activate it again and Whoa. you know we don't really know yeah totally 20 years <laughs> at least in herbarium conditions we don't know really the upper limit or what happens in nature um in the field is probably a different matter um herbarium is kind of good storage conditions but the field may be a little more stressful but i can share another anecdote mm -hmm. with you um there's a couple examples where mosses were kind of buried under glaciers, and then uh, mm. centuries later, 400 to 1,500 years later, they're exposed again, and researchers were able to go go get those tissues and uh, actually hydrate them and activate them. So under certain conditions, it might be a really long time. Whoa. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> 1,500 years. Holy shit. Yeah. That's an, it's an That's incredible, incredible number. Now. Now that's, you know, that's frozen too, but it's still impressive. Like I, I can't, I can't really think of anything else that, that could do that. Um, maybe some microbes that are, uh, preserved in, in permafrost would be the only other thing that's kind of like that. Yeah. But this is like a really complicated multicellular organism that's like, um, I'll see you guys in a millennia and a half. Bye. <laughs> exactly. That's crazy. Okay, so from what I understand, that there's this little hair-like growth on the tip of each leaf called an on, um, on this specific um, genus of mosses that are found in the desert. And it's this on that really helps the moss collect and, and hang on to its water, right? Yeah. It, um, it's been called the upside-down water collection system. <laughs> and, yeah, it is a way of getting water, but it it's like it's fundamentally different from how how roots work. It's all about capturing fog and dew, and um, basically the on just has like 
the perfect texture and little microstructures on it that dew and fog micro droplets will uh, condense onto and collect on it. So they've got these little micro grooves that are nice little little troughs for little droplets to get stuck into. And the on also has little. It's not just a hair. It's like a a hair with little um, little knobby teeth on it. And those teeth are always mm. are also uh, sites for water to accumulate. So what will happen is, you know, you get them in a, a foggy or dewy atmosphere, uh, and uh, the water will start to collect there, and uh, droplets will form near the teeth, and they'll just get bigger and bigger and coalesce, and eventually they get heavy enough that they will drip down to the plant and um, – hydrate the tissues and then then the moss is back in business it's activated and back to life that's awesome so i'm thinking about like filter feeders in the ocean that like put up these little hairs to like filter out um bacteria and like little plankton and stuff and that kind of sounds like that's what these moths are doing but instead of um looking for other organisms to eat they're just pulling the water out of the atmosphere yeah, yeah, it's a lot like that, or, or like, um, you know, when a when a a person fishing just sets a bunch of lines and walks away and comes back, you know, it just sets the stuff up and then <laughs> lets what they're looking for come to come to them. Yeah, <laughs> I'm gonna go drink some beers. I'll see you guys in a bit. Exactly. Awesome. So does that on um, also reduce uh, UV damage? You know, you think about the desert and, like, of course, there's like it's dry, but it's also, like, sunny as hell, and you're just going to get super toasted. So does that mm-hmm. um, on help with UV radiation? Maybe. Um, I'm not sure if anyone's ever actually demonstrated that, but it's, it's a totally reasonable hypothesis because the on is uh, light-colored and reflective. In fact, to the naked eye, it looks... It look it looks white, so um, mm. it, it 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 could and probably does to a little a little degree, um, but it is a couple things we could say about ons is they are multifunctional. They they're not just for the fog and dew. Um, they also um, reduce raindrop splash. So if a if a normal raindrop uh, hits the moss cushion, instead of some of that water splashing away from the cushion on impact, the the ons serve to um, just kind of uh, cushion that impact, and then the droplet hits, the entire droplet hits the moss intact. So it's kind of like increasing its marginal water gains with every Mm. raindrop strike. And they also are known to slow down the drying rate. There was actually some Chinese researchers that amputated the ons from some cushions and mosses and then compared them to the normal um, hairy version. And the uh, the hairy ones definitely held on to their, their body water longer. So there seems to be a role for kind of slowing down the rate of the dry down. Yeah, that's, that's really cool. Like. <laughs> All that just because of a, a silly little hair. Yeah, yeah, it's it's brilliant. <laughs> you know, <laughs> it's just this one thing that you know. It's probably like one little weird mutation. Like one moss was like, I got this weird hair growing out of me, and it was like, this is actually really cool. And then you know, process of natural selection over millions of years is like, this is great, and we can serve all of these purposes with this one structure. Yep, yep, it's a real Swiss Army knife. <laughs> Most of the time, these mosses are either dark brown or black um, until they get enough moisture for them to start photosynthesizing again. And so um, how fast can these moss go from being black or, like, looking dead and then switch, like, turn their photosynthetic mechanisms on um, to look green and alive again? Oh, it's just seconds, 30 seconds or less. It's uh, You can just watch it happen. It's pretty pretty magical. Yeah, it's pretty, it's super cool. It's my favorite thing to show, like, um, elementary school kids. I'm like, come here, come here, look at this. 
it's like, I'm like, is this thing alive or dead? And they're like, it's dead. And I'm, give me your water bottle, kid. And, and they just, like, it just blows their minds. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's a, it's a crowd pleaser. I use that, that little trick in my teaching all the time. Yeah. You know, like a lot of the times, like plants work on a different time scale than we do. You know, the, the plants move and stuff. It's just like, that we're so impatient to sit and watch them move. Like our perception is, uh, we, we just have a different clock. And so when there are things that, that happen on our time scale, it's amazing. So I'm thinking like, you know, Venus fly traps and these resurrection mosses and we have these little, um, earth star, uh, fungi that will, um, do this drying out and, and then when you wet them, they open up and release their spores. And, and so it's really fun to see those the plants that we think are sessile and kind of boring do things on the human time scale. Yeah. Yeah, it is, it is really cool. And one of the things that, that they do when they hydrate is the, the morphology really changes. They really like kind of unfurl their, their leaves and spread out and, the shape just changes, the color changes, the volume changes. It's it's a pretty amazing thing to see a so-called sessile organism just suddenly jump to attention like that. Yeah. So how dry can the – oh, I guess we don't really know. Maybe maybe you know this. Um, how dry can these things get before they actually die? Well, you know, desert mosses, they're not going to die just from air drying. And one way to think about it is um, the ones that we consider – really desiccation tolerant, they're, they're able to su- survive, um, you know, getting down to like 10% or less of uh, water content in their bodies. Um, so just a, a normal, a normal drying event doesn't, is not lethal at all, but they do have some sensitivities. Um, you can, you can kill them by like changing the way that they dry specifically. So some of these desiccation-tolerant species, they have a limited ability to tolerate really fast drying as compared mm-hmm. to slow drying. So slow drying, no problem. They can, you know, switch on all of their, you know, all their mechanisms that that let them uh, rebound from the dry down. Uh, but if you make them do it fast, they are uh, really on the back foot and, um they're going to sustain some damage. And uh, I know in our studies with uh, Centricia where we, and, you know, I, I apologize. We were, we were, we were bad, but we intentionally tried to kill them to see how many fast drying events <laughs> they could take. And um, it was between 10 and 20. So, oh, wow. yeah, you know, they can do a few of them maybe, uh, but uh, they, they definitely have a limited, a limited tolerance. To those, and maybe the other thing about dryness um, is how long they can wait in the dry state. I mentioned earlier that uh, my colleague resurrected one after 20 years in, in an herbarium, but you know we don't we don't really know the the normal field situation, and there there, there has to be a limit to it because when they dry down, they're they're susceptible to um, oxidative damage and uh, stuff like that that's going to degrade them. And because they're inactive, they can't fix problems that they have. So that would be the other thing to look at. But I don't feel like we really have a, a great handle on what the, the upper limit of that is. Yeah. Yeah, that's a really interesting question that remains unknown, you know, because in a herbarium, like, that place is built – for preserving things, for for not breaking down plant material. Um, yes. And so when you're out in the 120 degrees Fahrenheit desert being getting pounded by UV and getting tromped on by javelinas or, you know, whatever, like, you know, that's a very different set of environmental conditions. Yes. Yes, exactly. And um, it's probably a, a whole lot more damaging to be out there in nature with all those stressors. And I think we would expect kind of the, the normal tolerance for a dry down period to be far, far less than 20 years. 
Right. What is happening metabolically with these things when they're all dried up? Uh, I can answer that in one word. Uh, nothing. There's no, <laughs> there's no metabolism. Everything is um, turned off. So it's not like they're hibernating and operating in sleep mode. They're off, shut down. It's just peace, I'll see you later. Yes. I love it when things are clear. I'm like, yeah, <laughs> yeah. You you wouldn't you wouldn't be able to like measure anything. There's just there's just nothing going on, right? Which is really cool. So like you know it's it's really neat to go from like zero to you know full speed in thirty seconds. Yeah, so, like that's just like such a cool magic trick. Yeah, yeah, it is, and. You know, what it, what it really serves to illustrate is there really are two different paths for, for dealing with, with water. You know, you can try to keep water in your body all the time, or you can deal with the consequences of losing it all and then, you know, have the ability to rebound once it's available again. Those are kind of the two directions evolutionarily that, that, uh, a plant could go and, Desiccation-tolerant mosses have gone really far down one of those paths. <laughs> For sure. So why are these plants so important to the ecosystem? They're commonly a part of a uh, type of community called a biological soil crust. And I would say that the that, that community is super important to dry ecosystems um, for, for a lot of reasons. Uh, but... Maybe the the top of the list would be the fact that they they grow right on the the very soil surface and they're not not very deep. We're talking like millimeters deep, just the very very top. And then they form this uh, almost like living skin on top of there, and it's protective. It keeps the soil from eroding because the organisms hold it all together, and it's also kind of like a um, a regulating boundary, also like a skin, so it has some control over what comes in from above uh, into the soil. So, you know, one example would be um, photosynthesis. These biological crusts are photosynthetic, so that means that uh, CO2 uh, can come into them. It's another, it's another pipeline for CO2 to enter into the soil. And they're also exchanging other other interesting things like um, different species of uh, nitrogen, for example. So through time, these crusts, they uh, can accumulate soil fertility in the top of the soil. And they also pull a lot of the levers with regards to um, what happens to uh, hydrology and soil water. They can, they can control how much of the water soaks in and how much runs off and how much is retained in the soil. So it's a it's a big bag of, of pretty important functions and mosses can be a big component of that. I remember when I was a little kid, um, we went to Arches National Park in southern Utah and there was this informational sign that said, um, Biocrust, keeping this place in place. You know, and as like as, as a seven year old kid I was like, damn, that is a good title. Like, whoever came up with that title, that was clever. And, um, <laughs> you know, like, it's 30 years later, I'm still like, that's a great title. Man. Yeah. Um, yeah. They still, they still use that one. Do they? Because it's, yeah, it's they do. brilliant. It's, uh, it's just such a great thing. Um, because really that's what they're, uh, these biocrusts are doing is, is uh, preventing the soil erosion, which is a big deal. Like, you know, in the in the Southwest, if there's, you know, bare soil, wind comes up and it picks up half the soil and, and blows it away and, and it causes mm -hmm. all sorts of ecosystem disruption. Yeah. Yeah, that's just like throwing your soil fertility away and that just throwing the soil itself away. And um, soils can't replenish themselves as fast as they can be eroded. So it's just an overall degradation of, of the ecosystem. And then that sediment that gets eroded, uh, it 
it goes somewhere. You know, for example, with wind erosion, it becomes it'll become dust, and that could be going off, creating respiratory problems or traffic accidents or being a vector for valley fever or or whatever. You know, so mm-hmm. it's 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 always better to have the place held in place. So another thing that I wanted to ask you about was what does it mean um, for primary production in the desert when they have these pulses of photosynthetic activity? So, like, you know, most of the time the moths are like, peace out, um, I'll become metabolically active when I want to, when the conditions are right, um, and then they just, like, go crazy. Um, And so Mm -hmm. having these pulses of um, photosynthesis do you have any idea what that means for the broader ecosystem, for um, carbon cycling, for um, microbial activity, stuff like that? Uh, sure. I have a couple thoughts about that. Well, one one thing is like the just the overall productivity of the ecosystem. Having um, uh, biocrusts or mosses um, present in, in the ecosystem that, that add these pulses, it's going to boost the overall <laughs> productivity. Um, and, the reason is uh, that some precipitation events don't really bring enough moisture to really soak down the vascular plant roots. So there's not really a strong signal with the vascular plants. Um, but those those small precipitation events might be enough to trigger uh, some activity in uh, in the biological crust. Or maybe it's a maybe it's a fog or dew event, and it just turns them on for a little bit and these are just kind of like bonus bonus uh, production events uh, regarding like microbial activity yeah I think we would we would expect microbes that live near these mosses or live in biological crust I, I think we would expect them to uh, be hardwired to turn on and jump to jump to attention whenever the mosses whenever the mosses turn on one anecdote I can share from from research is that uh, a collaborator of mine was comparing the microbial communities underneath patches of mosses on the soil and then on bare soil directly adjacent to it. And uh, he did this uh, on aridity gradients. So he would go from drier to wetter locations and make the same comparison. Mm-hmm. And as you might predict, uh, aridity of the site really changed what microbes were present quite a bit, but they changed way less under the moss. So that's kind of suggests that the mosses are, are creating a more uniform and uh, protected microhabitat wherever they are, and um, they're kind of uh, buffering, so to speak, the uh, the environment of the of the microbes and shaping those microbial communities. That's cool. Yeah, it's just kind of this little a little uh, island of suitable habitat for these microbes that otherwise they just get nuked. Yes. Yeah, and maybe maybe they're a little bit protected if the climate is drying out. They they may be able to hang on a little bit better in association with the moss. So here's a question that I didn't put on the list that I just jumped into my head based on what you said. How is climate change affecting these mosses? Yeah, probably not in a good way. So the first thing to think about here is kind of like how does a desiccation-tolerant moss view time? It's not by the same clock that we use because it it's only aware of the periods of time when it's wet, which are a minority of the time. Right. Mm-hmm. So, you know, a year may pass for, for you and me, but the mosses may only have actually been awake and experienced, I don't know, a month of that or two months of that. Right. right. Um, because that's their, that's their hydrated awake time. When, when you bring climate change into the picture, it's definitely going to, um, decrease the amount of the time that, uh, the soil surface where the mosses live are wet. And therefore, it's going to shrink down their awake active time. That's not just because of precipitation changes. It's more because most places are getting warmer. And when you have warmer temperatures, you have more, you have faster evapotranspiration from the soil. 
And, you know, basically that just means that the sill dries out way faster. If it gets wet, it's going to dry out faster in the future, and that's going to lead to less less wet time and um, mm-hmm. just less activity overall for the mosses. So they're going to be able to – they're not going to be able to do as much in a typical year of the future as they did in a typical year of the past. So mm-hmm. I think we would we would start to see declines in their in their abundance and their and their rates of, of productivity. Another thing I could mention, an experimental study. Uh this was done up in, in Utah and the researchers there they um they changed um frequency and magnitude of precipitation without changing the total amount of, of rainfall. Uh-huh. So they had like kind of a, a normal treatment, uh, which mimicked uh, the normal precipitation. And then they, they had another treatment where they give twice as many hydration events with half as much water. So the total amount of water was the same, but the second one was broken into, you know, just mm-hmm. these really little, little amounts of water. And they actually killed 90% of their mosses in only in only one year. So, Whoa. although these are these are tough organisms in a lot of ways, they are they're living on kind of a kind of living on the edge when when it comes to certain habitat stressors. Like if hydration times and hydration amounts go down drastically, if that's the way that climate change goes, then that would be Definitely bad news for some of these soil mosses. Yeah, and as as we just said, you know, these guys are so important to ecosystem uh, services that that would that will have some serious cascading effects. Yeah, when you lose the mosses and you lose the crust that they help form, uh, you lose all the all the good stuff that they do. Another kind of moss that you study is fire moss, and what are those? Yeah, so fire mosses, they are mosses that proliferate on soil after fires, and normally we're talking about forest fires here, okay? So in a way, it's like, it's a, it's a biological soil crust, but it's a very specific one. It's almost all mosses. It tends to be just like a handful of species that do this, and they're, they're kind of like generalist species, cosmopolitan, same species as on many continents. And, um, mm-hmm. for some reason, they, um, they just really love the burned, the burned soil. And, uh, Ooh. they, they grow, they kind of grow, uh, incredibly fast. So within, um, months to a few years, depending on where you are, um, you can get some substantial cover of these mosses in these burned ecosystems where there's not really a lot of living cover left. Right. And so I can see that that might be really important, um, you know, after, especially after a severe burn, one of the things that we worry about is soil erosion. You know, um, fire comes through, kills all the grasses and understory plants, and then we get a huge rain. Well, now there's nothing to hold that soil in place. But it sounds like these moths might have um, fill some of that role of being able to slow down soil erosion. Yeah, at least uh, at least we hope so. Um, we've been able to investigate that a little bit with uh, one of my students, Henry Grover. Uh, two of them, actually, Chris Ives as well. And what we found is that the presence of the mosses seems to uh, increase the infiltration rate of water, and at least on a small scale. And it also... Um, boosts the stability of the soil surface like how well it's held together so that would that would uh, imply some uh, some good uh, protection from erosion and uh, some other researchers uh, around the world have have uh, contributed to other data that that does suggest the presence of these mosses measurably decreases um, the amount of water erosion so that's good news um, it's it's interesting it makes us wonder can we can we use the mosses somehow um, as kind of like a ecological restoration material? Can we can we make them grow more so that they can um, uh, help prevent floods and uh, soil erosion? 
which are, you know, huge problems after wildfires. Yeah, yeah. So is there work being done um, to figure out how to grow these in vast quantities and then spray them over, you know, huge portions of California or wherever there's been a huge wildfire? There has. Uh, not quite at the scale you're talking about yet, but we have <laughs> been working in the greenhouse to uh, grow the mosses pretty fast, and it works well. We can grow – they can be grown in, say, eight weeks. We can go from a, a modest cover of mosses to a very high cover of mosses. That doesn't seem like super limiting. Mm-hmm. It seems very doable to actually be able to grow them. The tricky part is like the reintroduction part. Like when you, okay, so you grew up, grew a pile of mosses. That does not necessarily mean that if you take those and then just stick them in the burned area, that they're necessarily going to grow and thrive. It's, you can draw the uh, analogy to seeding. Seeding alone uh, may or may not work, right? And that's what right. we're kind of proposing to do with mosses. So that's probably where we need the most work is, you know, figuring out how can we make these mosses establish really well. We've been able to do it to some degree, get them to grow a little bit more in real burned environments, uh, but we're not quite there yet, and we're still working on it. Well, that's a really important work. Um, and I think as the climate continues to change and as wildfires become more and more of an issue, being able to slow down those um, after effects of fires can be important. Yeah, I I agree totally. There's a lot of people doing pre-fire restoration ecology where they're they're trying to modify the the fuels and the density of trees and stuff like that so that the fire isn't so devastating when it happens. And that's one that's one angle, but then the other angle is well, you know, even though we know a lot about that, we're still having lots of big and really hot fires. And we need we need some some good things to do with with those situations too. So we hope that right. this fire moss technology that we're trying to create we hope that that's part of a part of a solution for those areas. Awesome. Yeah. Well, it's good work and keep it up. Thank you. Okay. So I have two more kind of silly questions. So is there a scientist that is uh, famous or otherwise that has influenced how you think about science? the natural world or, or anything like that? I've been lucky. I've had lots of great mentors and collaborators, people like Jane Belknap and Nancy Johnson, and who, who talked on your podcast not long ago, I believe, and uh, Fernando yeah. Maestre. And, of course, there's lots that I've admired from afar. Um, but I would say that I wouldn't be doing what I do now without my very first science mentor, who was uh, Low Stark at uh, UNLV. He was the one that gave me my first research opportunity and, you know, the one that taught me about Centricia, who's, you know, still my my good friend and study object today. (laughs) And uh, that opportunity just really woke something in me. I think that was the, the, like I found my, you know, what I was supposed to do with my life um, in doing research. So, um, yeah, I would say, I would say low. That's awesome. Okay, so what is, like, the craziest or most memorable thing that has happened to you while you're doing research? So this could be in the greenhouse, the lab, the field, whatever. Well, I I sat next to a rattlesnake for 20 minutes and um, (laughs) without seeing it, (laughs) I I was downloading my data loggers and just sat on a rock and directly next to me was a snake and... Luckily, it was too it was too cold that morning, and the snake couldn't move. Or maybe we, we wouldn't be talking today. <laughs> yeah, that's a, they're really good at camouflage. Yeah, and this was one of those I believe it's called a midget faded. It's a small rattlesnake from the Colorado Plateau, and they just won't rattle. They're such jerks; they don't tell you they're there. <laughs> they're just like, leave me alone, bitch. And uh... yeah. <laughs> I'm not going to tell you where I am. Yeah. Yeah, good luck leaving me alone. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. Yeah, that's one of those things that you don't forget. And you look down and you're like, oh, hey, buddy. <laughs> um, so is there anything that you want to plug? Yeah, sure. Uh, if you're interested in learning more about 
Centricia, um, you should check out our project webpage for 3D Moss. So the website is just 3dmoss.berkeley.edu. And uh, this is a collaboration between um, uh, several institutions, including including Berkeley, including us at NAU and, and others. And uh, you can read about all the interesting things we're doing with Centricia, ranging from transcriptomics to population genetics to community ecology and climate change responses and phylogenies and all that stuff. Everything Centricia, a good one-stop shopping place to learn is that website, 3D Moss. Awesome. And I'll put a link for that in the show notes. Cool. Okay. Awesome, Matt. Thank you so much. Thank you for your time, and thanks for inviting me. So, check for hidden rattlesnakes before plopping your ass down somewhere, because sometimes those bastards don't give you full warning. In the next episode, I will talk to Matt's first-ever PhD student, Dr. Mike Remke. Mike and I talk about mycorrhizal fungi. These typically beneficial fungi are found in the roots of almost all plants. Mike and I talk about why these hidden fungi are so damn important to ecosystems. So look for that in your feed on April 14th, 2021. And don't forget to check out WTF Biology YouTube channel for some cool ass nature shit videos. Remember, I was recently in Grand Canyon with a bunch of cool scientists and there are a bunch of really great uh, videos up there. You can also look for more Cool Ass Nature Shit videos at patreon.com slash WTFbiology, and you can get access to those at the $5 a month level. And at the $1 a month level, you can get access to a bunch of bonus content, including secrets that I tell about each episode. For this episode, I tell how I used a non-traditional method in a traditional class project. As always, music for this show is by Dr. Ron Deckert. The song this week is called Green Rain um, and is about how plants can green up really quickly in the desert. It's pretty fantastic for this episode. Please check out Ron's music on SoundCloud at soundcloud.com slash ron hyphen Deckert. You can follow me on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok. I am at WTF underscore biology in all of those places.